Hello and welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. My name is Ruben Williams and with me, as always, is the healthy Ryan Walker. How are you, mate? I'm fantastic, Rhodes. Feeling healthier than ever before uh, for seeing you. So I'm going well. How are you going? Very well. Spring has come. That glow is shining off you once again. It's uh, yeah. it's always a pleasure being able to see your face. And um, yeah, I'm sure Dom will be good to see you in, in healthy uh, spirits as well. But of course, none of this would be possible without our good friends, Deakin University, where every single course is backed by industry experts, such as Dr. Dom, who we'll hear from shortly. So you can be confident you'll get the job you want with a degree employers want. Deakin University, progressive, real world learning. And you're about to find out exactly why when you hear from, from Dr. Dom. Yeah. Now, right, we've also got a very special new sponsor for the podcast, which is extremely exciting. Now, this show is also brought to you by our good friends at Sports Where I Am. They are a terrific platform if you want to find sports where you are. It's like Google for sport, which mm. is unbelievable. Um, and something that I really wish I had when I was traveling around Europe and America in 2018 um, could have given me a whole lot more to see at the time. But if you want to give yourself a memorable summer to look forward to, then head to www.sportswhereiam.com to find all your favorite sports. Plus, you can use the code SPORTSGRAD and you'll get 5% off your tickets at the same time. How good is that, Ryan? Unreal. Unreal. I love sports where I am. I, I'm already thinking, you know, there's been a lot of chat amongst us for future grad tours. Mm. Uh, and one big one, we want to go on a, a cycling trip. Mm. So I'm already thinking... You know, when we get into planning, mm. we'll essentially have sports where I am as a bookmark uh, at mm. the top of the screen. So, um, no, unreal platform. And, I mean, how good's our good friends at Deakin and sports where I am uh, just for, for, for sponsoring the pod? It just it literally wouldn't happen if we didn't have our good friends involved. So, thank you to them. Correct. Finally, if you want to learn more about us and who we are, ask us any questions, learn about our background, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. You can find a link to do so in the show notes. Now, Ryan, on to Dr. Dom Kondo, who is an accredited sports dietitian consulting to the Geelong Cats Football Club, who play in the preliminary final tomorrow night. When this goes out, the result will be decided. So we hope yeah. the Geelong Cats win. We are, we're barracking for the pod on this occasion. Fingers crossed. Well, yeah. Rubes. It's mm. funny you say that because in the last few years, haven't we picked mm. the winner or did we fail last year? Well, we, we picked the winner with the Tigers. We picked the winner with uh, Kansas City Chiefs, yeah. I believe, too. The Sydney Sixers as well. Yeah. Uh, so we might have just jinxed ourselves by calling this out. Yeah. But, but my God, we're off, going for him. We're going for it, yeah. If this comes off, I'm glad you mentioned it. Love uh, it. Dr. Dom is a lead performance dietitian uh, to their AFL and AFLW program and has been since 2016. Uh, she has also worked as the player development manager for the AFLW team in 2019 and 2020. And plus, she is also a senior lecturer in the sports nutrition department at Deakin University. And one of her key research areas is in female athletes and the area of energy availability, body image, and disordered eating. Finally, if that wasn't enough, Dr. Dom is also the Vice President of Sports Dietitian Australia and has her own consulting business with a large focus on athletes' nutrition. Ryan, bumper episode, huge guest. What have we got to look forward to? Well, I mean, if that intro wasn't enough to, to get you pumped, um, Dom, Dom is an absolute superstar. Um, awesome to chat to her. Um, I loved hearing from her, just some basic tips for working with athletes. Um, we did a little bit of a new segment at the end there, trying to shoot some shoot fire some questions at her, um, and she did brilliantly. But, um, yeah, just hearing the passionate you know, words that she had for working with athletes and some of those key tips was, was really cool to hear. Mm, and some of them are extremely practical and not you know quite what you'd expect when you, when you mm. look at her role. One of the other things I think people can look forward to too is – what exactly are the Geelong cats eating? Now, Dom's controlling all of it, and she shares with us some of the intricacies of what the players get up to. 
And uh, yeah, we need to find out who this player is, who we could not name in the main body of this episode, but uh, has a pretty uh, pretty odd uh, addition to his meal during the games, which uh, you'll hear all about. Yeah, that was that was really different, and both being footballers in our own right, Rubes. I guess <laughs> I, I guess you could call me a footballer. Uh, yeah, I can't say I've ever wanted to eat that specific food uh, before, during, or after the game. Um, <laughs> but finally, the, the last thing I loved was um, Dom just talking about the time you need uh, to, and the effort you need to put in, in if you want to work in a high performance in the AFL. Um, there's a lot of work you need to put in, but it's ultimately really rewarding. And you can see by her resume right there, Rubes, like she's done a whole lot of stuff and it's not just with Geelong. You know, she, she's got her fingers in a lot of pies. And I think it's a really amazing thing for her just to be able to have that visibility over the whole industry. So um, it's certainly a well-sought-after area in sport. There's absolutely no denying that. But I think um, you got to put some time in to get there. But once you do, it, it, it's a ripper. So, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. If you want to be the nutritionist of an AFL team, there's only six, eight, 18 jobs going around so you have to be at the absolute top of the pile yeah but without further ado grab a pen and enjoy this chat with none other than dr dom condo dom welcome to the sports grad podcast hi guys thanks for having me it's pretty exciting dom it's probably the uh the most common question that you're currently getting but how is uh, the hub over in Perth? I, I trust I've got you in Crown, I would imagine. No, we're not in Crown, actually. Um, the hub's good, but we're not in Crown. We were Not last... in Crown? I know. Um, yeah, we, we were in Crown last year, but no, not this year. We're in a, well, um, and a hotel called The Trade Winds in, in Frio, which is um, a family-run hotel, and they're just gorgeous, looking after us. Nice. More than we could imagine. So, um, now nah, it's it's great. It feels a bit like Big Brotherish. Like there's a pool in the middle, and then all the um, apartments are like three levels up. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit odd. <laughs> you, you know what everyone's up to. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, but no, can't complain. It's um, yeah, it's been great, and yeah, boys seem as though they've settled in really nicely, which is good. Oh, very good. Well, flattening you get the, I mean, we won't call it downgrade because we obviously love the family hotel in Frio and Frio have been very good to the Sports Go podcast. So we won't, um, we won't downgrade that, but gee, I thought you'd be living up in Crown, um, yeah. but that's okay. I know, a bit disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, yeah, no, this is great, but yeah, Crown was pretty great last year. <laughs> <laughs> Dom, when um when we spoke previously, you mentioned that um, uh, you've had a, like an enormous career, you've done ma- many different things. But you, one of the things you touched on was how completing your PhD was a you know, was a key turning point for your career. Um, yeah. I was wondering if we might start there and how that led to what you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess a, a really brief, brief background. Um, I'm a, a sports dietitian, and so to become a sports dietitian, you have to do your masters in dietetics. So my university um, sort of background, I went from high school to biomedical science into dietetics, master dietetics. Um, and I then worked as a dietitian for a period of time, good couple of years, you know, in hospitals and community centers. Um, you know, and, and I really had a passion at that point for, for sport was one part of it. But then the clinical side of it, I had a passion in pediatric nutrition. Um, so I worked at a women's and children's hospital in Adelaide where I was um, born and bred. Um, and I guess I just, I, I never thought I'd be interested in research. You know, through uni, it was always that subject where it was like, oh, you know, more literature reviews and writing papers. And I was always the people person that wanted to consult and um, and, and really focus on that element. But um, I really found that I, I really missed the science and just felt as though, um, you know, I wasn't probably being challenged in the way that I wanted to be and and just thought, where could this lead me? Like, I don't want to, not that there was anything wrong with it, but I didn't want to work in a hospital for the rest of my career. Um, 
And so I had a conversation with an old lecturer um, that I caught up with and she said, you know, think about doing your PhD. You've got the, the background qualifications to be able to enrol. Um, so, you know, I once I get something in my head, I sort of am the sort of person that, that doesn't let it go. So I had some conversations and before I knew it, I was enrolled in a PhD in the paediatric space, so in infant and maternal nutrition at that time. Um, and those four years were just unbelievable. I mean, I obviously learned incredible research skills, um, and but a PhD teaches so much more than technical skills. It's it's really about um, that dedication and um, and actually seeing through a project that can get pretty difficult at times. Um, and with that came so many opportunities to meet people, to network. I, I got lecturing jobs in universities. I worked as a research assistant. So it just opened up opportunities. Um, and then from that led to, to a job at Deakin Uni when I moved to Melbourne. And, and that was, I guess, the start of my new career outside of being a, a practicing dietitian, which I guess I've gone back to now in, in the sports space. But um but yeah, so it just it opened up opportunities for me that I never knew would be possible and, and connected me with real experts in the field that have opened up not only research opportunities, but also practical opportunities as well. You're right that um, just by completing a PhD, even if someone's got no idea what you've done and you would have learned a whole lot and found out all those incredible things and developed yourself along the way, it can just be such a great stamp of credibility to say I've dedicated three life three years to three years of my life to this project which is enough to kind of say to anybody that you know you are an expert in this space yeah I mean and and it's interesting because don't get me wrong PhD is is hard um by all means probably one of the hardest things I've done but it's not it's not hard as in um real content so to speak I mean you have to write a lot so that so that's a difficult point but again it's really about just that not giving up I mean that's the hard thing and that's why so many people don't make it through a PhD because you face so many challenges and so many setbacks and you're focusing on one topic for three to four years of your life that um you know I think the skills it taught me is just when you commit to something you get it done um regardless of the challenges and and that those sort of skills have seen me through you know other things that have happened since then as well so Mm. yeah I think one of the other things that people perhaps might not realize when you do a PhD is that they're often funded or you get jobs along the way to to pay for it too. And I think there's some tax exemptions that, that come with it as well to encourage you to do it. So I remember when I started, I thought, PhD, I don't know how much bigger my hex debt can get, but apparently <laughs> it's actually pretty favorable. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess, you know, you're still a student, but you're not, you're not really a student like a <laughs> a uni student you know you're essentially working and with that comes other opportunities for work so whether it be you know teaching or marking or whatever it is and you're on a scholarship most of the time I mean not everyone is on a scholarship when they do a PhD but it is hard if you're not um you know and and if you have gone through the right paths and you should be eligible for scholarships um or find a project that is well funded so that you can actually be on that scholarship and you know you end up earning and you're not you're not rolling in it, but you you earn your minimum wage <laughs> and and um and in you can live. It's fine. It, you you know you'd be equivalent by the time you get your scholarship and do other bits and pieces to to what a lot of grad positions are first year out. So um yeah, it's definitely not the same as being a student and continuing on with that hex step. Yeah, and you you get the doctor title as well, don't you? If you yeah. finish that. Yep that was that was my main driver. That's my main. <laughs> Why why wouldn't you do it if you get doctor at the, at the start of your name? So it's the wrong reason to to do it. I mean, it's a lot harder than you know, but um, but I just thought at the time, all seriousness, I thought, well, it'd be pretty cool to be a doctor, and I'm not gonna go back to med school now, so I may as well just do it. Yeah. And and Dr. Dom rolls off the tongue as well. So. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I agree. We've um we've also referred to you as Dr. Dom at the start of the episode, which the listeners will hear. So uh yeah that's that's a bonus of course um don one of the super important things for any career is you know the reason why you why you get into it um and obviously if you can share a really compelling reason why a job is important to you then people genuinely believe you're committed to doing it and you know obviously you'll do it the best you can we're wondering if you'd be willing to share how some of your personal experience led to some of your professional experience 
Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I, I've had a, a passion for nutrition for as long as I can remember. Um, maybe not to think of it as being my career. I um, I sort of, when I was going through high school, always wanted to be a lawyer um, very randomly. And, and that was just my, you know, maybe my dad put that in my head. I'm not sure, but it was, you know, be a lawyer. And so I went, did the, um, you know, the the uh, placements in law firms and, and whatnot. And then I got to year 12 and just randomly things happened where I had to take on a subject that I didn't think I had to do and it ended up being nutrition and just loved it so my passion really really started from there but um from that point I mean um I've always had well from growing up from when I from quite a young age I did struggle with body image a fair bit I went through periods in primary school that even my mum tell me it tells me about now where I would just come home and say, oh, you know, compared to the other girls at school, I'm too chubby or too fat and just decide to stop eating for a period of time and then sort of scared myself a little bit from, um, you know, in 12 years old, losing a lot of weight and then just started eating again. Um, and, and and that sort of happened a little bit, but it was nothing, um, I guess, that lasted a long time to the point that it was overly serious and I would just sort of get over it. But then I got to a point, um, you know, unfortunately, when I was in my first year in um, at uni when um, I remember I was uh, walking along the street and um, this car of boys drove past and said, um, oh, you're fat, just screamed it out the window. Yeah. And I mean, I'm... I'm right. Yeah, I'm not quite five foot, so I'm very little. And <laughs> you know, the most I've ever weighed is 52 kilos. Like I'm not a, I'm not a big person by all means. Um, mm. we've, and, we've seen the Deacon videos where you have to get on the box to stand at the yeah, kitchen counter. <laughs> I'm little. Um, and that just rattled me. Um, obviously, there was a lot of underlying issues there, but that that unfortunately started a good few years of a pretty severe eating disorder um which a comment a comment like that normally shouldn't um but you know that was obviously just what i had in my mind from quite quite a young um young age so yeah that i went through a pretty horrific um period and and diagnosed with anorexia um got down to 32 kilos um within a few months and um and, and was pretty sick um still managed to Blitz uni some somehow. I think that now. I think wow. I don't know how I did that. Um, it must have been but, all in your brain. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I just, I think my, um, I guess, passion for nutrition at that time became an obsession, uh, unfortunately. Um, and I had to obviously see a lot of professionals, and and that was when I was doing biomedical science. And at that point, I was sort of told that I would never be able to become a dietitian um, if I, you know, looked the way I did and was going through what I went through. And so for a period, I sort of lost a bit of hope that in, in my long-term career goal. Um, but I actually ended up seeing an incredible dietitian in, who was part of my, my care team. Um, and she, yeah, she just was a, a really influential role model to me who um, allowed me to, I guess, you know, feel safe and, and talk about the concerns but help me through it um, and also sort of, you know, made sure that my passion was still there to, to continue on with my career. So from that point I thought, you know, I, I want to be able to help people the way that she helped me and, and saw um, nutrition in a different way. Um, and that's when, yeah, I, I continued on in that space and have then always had a passion um, you know, for, for disordered eating um, and, and helping people in, in that way. Uh, but I guess now it's with more of an athletic lens to it as well. So in my private work, I, I sort of do a lot of work in that space with athletes. Um, and, and yeah, and, and I guess I feel like I know where they're coming from um, and hopefully can use my own experience to help them as well. It's horrible you had to go through something like that. But what I really like about this story is that you've been able to turn a negative into an extreme positive that's become an incredible career for yourself. And I think no matter what job you do, having a level of empathy for the people who you work with or serve allows you to do a much better job of it. And, you know, we've though that theme of empathy has been consistent with people like Finn Bradshaw, who's the head of digital at the ICC, having empathy for your audience there, or, you know, people who are coaching athletes as well. They've been an athlete, so they understand how to move or understanding yeah. 
why nutrition is so important is because it's been, you know, incredibly impactful for you in the past. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, your story is incredibly, I guess it's, it's very inspirational for anyone else who might have been through some sort of hardship who can then turn that into empathy that can be used for good. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and it, it's not even to, to um, you know, to the point that you have to have to only have that sort of empathy for people that might be going through a similar thing to what I went through. I mean, I work in, um, you know, in AFL teams, which don't get me wrong, there's, there's always going to be, um, you know, the, the eating disorder, um, or disordered eating or body image issues in some of the athletes I've worked with. But, but as a whole, it, it's not overly common, especially in the men that I work with. But, you know, they go through different issues and there's different reasons why they might be struggling, um, you know, with either their nutrition or, or other elements. And so I think you use those skills, um, you know, and, and relate that to the people that you're working with and understand that when it comes to nutrition, people eat or don't eat for many reasons outside of fueling and performance um, that, you know, that there's so many social elements to it. Um, and I think we need to, to be able to help properly, we need to be able to, you know, understand that and, and exactly, you know, show some empathy towards them. Mm. Well, uh, we'll come back to your, the work you're doing on body image in just a sec. Um, right now you're over in WA in the AFL hub, as, as we mentioned, um, and where you, you're basically looking after the player's nutrition 24 seven. Typically, I believe, you know, you don't have complete control. You, you can have some time off for yourself, but at the moment it's full on. So what does a, a typical day look like for you? Yeah, it's um, it's actually a, it's an interesting scenario because, I mean, it's sort of every high-performance team's dream is to be able to control everything that the athletes <laughs> are doing. Normally it's only, you know, 30% of the time that we know what they're eating. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're lucky enough here to, you know, we've got incredible – I'm working with incredible chefs, um, so which is, which is just, yeah, amazing. And, and we had similar experiences last year in the four months that we were away. Um, they really do try and, and please. So I guess for me um, I put together all the menus for breakfast, lunch and dinner every day. Um, and, you know, I come from an Italian family, so I tend to over-cater rather than under-cater. Um, you'd you'd be very popular at a dinner, dinner party. I think, yeah, exactly yeah. right. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that's the way to, to someone's heart, isn't it? Just through their stomach. That's yeah, I, yeah. Um, so, and, and so, you know, it's really important that, you know, I base that menu around their training week as well, but then also understanding that, you know, they, they aren't working every day. We're living here, but it doesn't mean that they want to eat, you know, like, um, so clean every day and not that not that we we do that anyway i mean it's you have to also have some good taste in what you eat but it's it's important to acknowledge that there are certain days that they need certain things you know right now the night before a game they're going to see a lot more carbohydrates um you know on their menu there's um i guess much more selection there's uh, heaps of, of lean proteins and 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 it is more of a clean style of of meal um whereas like a couple of nights ago you know we had a big dinner out on our rooftop and you know we had a, a spanish night and um you know before that we had a massive fire pit roast with all these different you know beautiful cheese putters and desserts and because it's a tuesday night and they're not playing for another five days and they don't have a train the next day so a part of my job is to acknowledge that, you know, it's food for performance, but also food is an incredible connector um, and um, and enjoyment and, and choose the time so we can enjoy different types of food and then work with the chefs on that. So I would meet the chefs every day, go through what's happening today, make sure they're aware of it all um, and, um, and, and keep on top of that. As far as the other little things, you know, we've got a, a supplement sort of bar or table that get up you know every morning and just to to make sure you know that what they have at this really important time is just in front of them and they don't have to think too much about it um you know we, we 
try and, and obviously educate our players to be um, obviously very independent and, and look after their own performance. But at times like this, when we're playing such important games, it's we just want to get something, we want to get all the stuff that they need in front of them. So, you know, they'll have their, their green shots and their collagen shots and their vitamins and that's all, you know, laid out for them um, that they, you know, have every day as well. Um, and now we have our hydration table that's all set up. So everything they need to be high-performing athletes is in front of them every day. Gee, uh, I think if I had a, a hydration station, maybe a supplement <laughs> bar, maybe I would get on the bike a little bit more often, Rubes. <laughs> you completely new band, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'd be fit as a fiddle, abs, <laughs> everything. With yeah. with the chefs, are they just local chefs? Like you just – like how do you source them? Now, they're just the chefs that come with the hotel. Right, <laughs> and okay. It's, it's always a really um, rocky star. Um, yeah. Chefs, I mean, I have so much respect for chefs. I, I, I cook, obviously, but it's nothing. I mean, I just cook to eat. It's nothing, um, you know, extraordinary. I, I don't know how they, they do it for so many people. Um, but it is always a rocky start, especially if they're not used to um, cooking for a high-performance team. Yeah. Um, this chef definitely was not. Um, and so there's a lot of anxiety around it. There's a lot of, you know, uh, putting your trust yeah, in they're, them. They're, they're, yeah, and they're an unusual bunch. Like they're, <laughs> they're very, you know. Yeah. They like to keep their kitchen the way they want it. And you don't want a scenario. Remember, MJ ate the pizza the night before game seven or game six, I remember. I just watched The Last Dance. I should remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't have a scenario where that happens to the cats tomorrow night. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, um, no, they, they do really try to please those. So um, it's it, it, it has been great. And I think it's been a massive learning experience for, for this hotel as well. They've never had, you know, teams stay with them. Um, and, yeah, they've done an amazing job. But, you know, we, we just – the chef comes with the hotel um, and yep. I just work with them a lot until they start to get the gist. You know, last year we were in the same place for three months and by the end of it they, they got it. They sort of knew – what they had to do and they started to come to me with ideas rather than me, um, you know, giving them everything, um, which, which was great. But, yeah, it's been fantastic, amazing food. Yeah, nice. Um, we've spoken a little bit about the day-to-day in terms of preparing the players. Mm-hmm. How does the work you do during the week compare to what you'll be doing tomorrow night when the Cats play the Ds? Yeah, great question. Um Game day, so, so during the week, I guess, is when I do most of my work, really. Like, and then that's where you would use your nutrition and dietetic skills, whether it yeah. be, you know, following up with, if we're in season, following up with players from how they went in the game. Um, you know, if someone um, cramped, having conversation with them about when and, and what they did. If someone, you know, didn't feel great, understanding why. And, and you know, so so during the week is when you actually do your work and, and put some, um, you know, implement some of those things that you might want to change or, or, or try. Um, and that's the only time that you, you know, would educate really. Um, because by the time you get to the game, it really should just be process, you know. I mean, to be honest, anybody could probably do my job on game day because as long as they had a a schedule of what to do because it's really just making sure that everything is out at the time it needs to be out, that, you know, this player gets this supplement at this time. So, I mean, that's in my head now. I know exactly who has what when. But at the end of the day, it's just process game day. And and I've always been, and this is what one of my great mentors told me uh, when I first started in, in sports, is that if people, if players and athletes are asking you on game day detailed questions or advice, you sort of haven't done your job properly you know, during the week, during training, because they should know what to expect and what to do um, and you just deliver it to them um, on game day. So, yeah, very process-driven, um, uh, which is different, obviously, to what we would do during the week. Yeah. I remember um, some of my first memories of footy or going to the footy was at my beloved West Coast Eagles at Subiaco oh, Oval. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, always, I always used to be amazed at the fact that Every single time Dean Cox came off the field, there'd be someone there waiting with a, a Gatorade. Yeah. So 
is that the kind of thing that you know? Like, I don't, I'm, I'm sure that happens now, but you know, every time someone comes off, they need X or they yeah. need this and that, and you got to yeah. memorize that for 22 players. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So you know, he has a um, caffeine gel at this break, and he has a jam sandwich, and he has <laughs> a little bit more pre-workout, and he likes the berry gel. Uh, he has a pickle juice. That's yeah. What we're <laughs> You'd have a pretty wicked Excel doc for that mm. to track, <laughs> I can you imagine. Do. You do, and you have to make sure you actually keep it updated because in the event that I, you know, I'm not at a game for some reason, and you know it's up here at the moment, but yeah. Um, but yeah, it's important to, to document that stuff. But yeah, we know exactly who has what when. This might be sensitive information, but what's what's the strangest request for food during during a game you've received? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good one. Um, it, nothing, nothing is too, um, I guess, weird to, that I've come across. Probably, probably um, quite randomly, and I won't, yeah, no names being named, but last year a player just decided to start having dates um, on the bed, <laughs> which is just, I didn't quite get, like never before. Um, I think, I think he saw one of the tennis players somewhere um from having dates um and i mean all that went through my mind was like if you're not used to having dates yeah fiber in a date i just thought you don't need anything yeah. yeah yeah not not the time to eat dates <laughs> so he's it's like I, i'm just imagining like you know people studying at home might have a bowl of fruit and nuts and dates just like snacking while they're study was he just like having a snack whilst Playing a game of footy. Yeah, like on the bench, just eating on dates. Just snacking on dates. There's got to be footage there somehow. We've got to find out who this is. <laughs> yeah, that's rogue. That's pretty that's random. Okay. Especially during the game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, probably, that's probably the weirdest. I mean, some I look at and think, oh, I, I personally couldn't get down like a sandwich at a break or something like no. that. But um, but obviously, you know, it's, it's good if you can. It's great energy. Um, but but yeah, uh, not not that it's weird. It's just sometimes I look and think, I don't know how you do it. But yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> dates is the weirdest one I've come across. <laughs> Guess that's why they're playing AFL rubes and we're sitting behind the mic. So yeah, I've, I haven't bought dates in a long time. The dates might work. Might change it up. Yeah. yeah. Um, Don, we might change lanes slightly. You mentioned some of the research that you were doing earlier. And one of the interesting things you're currently working on is a study on the effect of body image in, in male athletes. Mm. I was wondering if you could start by talking about how this came about and what you're doing to better understand the impact of it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it is a really exciting project um, and, it, and it, unfortunately with COVID it has been put on hold slightly just as far as running the focus groups that we need to do in person, but but all the wheels are definitely in motion. So um, we've got a, a AFL group, um, an AFL dietitians group, which uh, we, we've really put a lot of, of work into and there's, and there's one of the dietitians who's really driven that group a, a lot in communication with AFL as well to really advocate, I guess, for the role of a dietitian in the high-performance team. Um, I guess, you know, through COVID, so many people's jobs have been changed and we just need to make sure that um, that we really understand the, the necessity for a dietitian skill um, and, and in particular focusing on, on that element of, you know, disordered eating and body image. And, and in, in male athletes, we tend to, to not think about it as much as we do in females and especially in sport like footy you know we often think oh n n none of the, the players you know struggle with with um disordered eating um and so you know we, we just haven't done any research on it but but through this group and working with afl players association we've sort of really identified the need to to do some more work in this area there's been a couple of previous um afl players who have come out quite openly and told their story about what they've um been through and and you know, back in, in the day and, and, you know, dare I say probably still in, in some places, um, the culture can really um, 
you know, not be ideal if you are struggling in that way because there are so many expectations on on our body composition in athletes. And so our aim is to really understand some of those experiences that past players did go through. Um, we like to think that it is a, a little bit better now, um, but, but you know, we definitely need to, to understand the current landscape. Uh, but this project in particular is looking at our past players um, and we're going to be running focus groups in collaboration with AFL Players Association and, and AFL and, and really understanding, um, you know, those experiences they went through and some of the consequences that that may have had in regards to how these players felt about body image and the practices that they actually did to to get down to a certain body composition because of that expectation they had on them um, and, and really start to raise the awareness of, of why certain um, expertise is required with athletes in high performance teams to, to help manage some of these issues. This might be a bit premature, but are there any early results or do you have any early hypotheses around um, what it all means? Yeah, I mean, we, we haven't started as yet from a data collection perspective. So the results, you know, is, is questionable. But even just talking to um, previous players uh, that, that are, you know, really advocating in this area, they know, I mean, there's been a handful that have come out and already told their story and, and they know of how many stories there are out there like theirs um, that people just that haven't shared yet. So I think we're going to find some really interesting um, information around it and probably be quite surprised on just mm. how common some of these thoughts are. I mean, it, it's still going to be more of a minority than a majority of, of, of AFL players that really go through, you know, severe disordered eating or eating disorders. Um, but, but the severity is just so... Um, you know, extreme that it's that that minority is a group that we really need to focus on and learn more about and make sure that culture and high performance sport is supportive um, and is not, um, you know, driving some of these issues. You mentioned how there's uh, implications within, you know, your particular workplace and also perhaps uh, broader messaging as well. I'm wondering, you know, for people who are thinking about getting into research, if you could perhaps talk about some of the places where uh, research has an impact. Where do the results of these end up and what sort yeah. of change in, in what spaces does this create change? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it definitely depends on the type of research that you're doing. Um, you know, from a scientific perspective, um, and this is, I guess, with the academic hat on, uh, you know, your, your research will be published in peer-reviewed journals, hopefully, and, and that potentially can help drive some change or at least you know start to have a reference point and contribute to the literature about what we know in this area so that's a really important space because uh, at the end of the day you know anyone in the health profession should be um, practicing by evidence-based practice so we actually need to build that evidence base to to be able to, to change practice so that's important but I think the the really amazing part of working in the applied space and with these organizations that are quite influential is that when you when you do do some research and find um, some some answers or some findings that um, you know that require change in that from a I guess from a um, network perspective from a communication perspective they have quite a bit of of, of pull and, and a large audience that those findings can actually be shared with and you know whether that be through um, you know social media and their website on their research pages um, you know new practice guidelines that their new practitioners have to to um, practice by that's how this evidence these findings and this evidence can actually start to change practice and, and increase awareness for some of the, the issues that are happening. And, and when you're working with great organisations like AFL, if there are issues, um, you know, from my experience of working with them for the years that I have, they do change practice and it becomes something that clubs have to implement. And whether that's just a change of how body comp is assessed or who assesses it or the, or the, or the process around that, I mean, that's all a step in the right direction. I reckon there's there's some work that could be done in like grassroots clubs as well. Like you mentioned expectations of what you should look like or what you should wear. Like 
I think you can't say that it's widespread, but I reckon there'd definitely be people who like don't feel comfortable in certain situations or like, you know, like the, a big one's like, oh, like how's your rig looking? And it's like if, if, if you don't feel like your rig's that good, then shit, you know, like it's pretty nerve-wracking. Yeah. So like I think it's probably a bit a problem out there, but we just don't probably don't, don't really think about it or address it. Um, but, yeah, it's an interesting one because I think it, Absolutely. it'd and be I out think, there. Yeah, and I think like even a lot of um, staff that might work in, in grassroots clubs or in sub-elite clubs, you know, may have been through the elite programs and they may be part yeah. players themselves and, and have certain experiences that they then implement because that's what they feel is normal. So it's, it's a culture shift, really. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the great thing about working with organisations, again, that, that have that influence is that what they do do at top level does get fed down. Um, yeah. and, and that's really, really important. Yeah. Um, another project that you're working on is the relationship between food and sleep, yeah. uh, which I think is it's pretty relevant to anybody who has done any of those things. Um, what can you share with us absolute amateurs here, um, Uni Blues footballer, Lawn Dolphins footballer, um, and other amateur athletes who are looking to get some advantage wherever we can? Yeah, well, firstly, I think, and what we now know, sleep is one of the most important um, recovery processes for athletes. I mean, if you can invest time in anything, it's sleep. Um, And, you know, that's a lot easier said than done because we all know that sometimes we want to sleep more than what we do and for certain reasons we can't. Um, And so, you know, I was really interested in thinking, well, how does food influence sleep in athletes because we all know you know just from own experience that maybe if we eat something it keeps us awake longer if you have a heavy meal at a certain time or you feel like if you have you know a meal that's a bit higher in fat or for some reason you feel a bit more alert there's all these sort of you know stories that we can probably think about but but the evidence around it is actually quite slim around how this interaction actually works so we just started by um trying to answer the question in afl and and doing some observational type work where we would monitor sleep and monitor diet over periods of time in AFL and AFLW players and actually look at, um, you know, are there any links and correlations there? Um, And what we sort of started to find over a few years of doing this is that it it seemed as though, well, what we know is that sugar negatively impacts sleep. And I think we probably all all know of that. Um, It's not a a secret that um, sugar can be a little bit of a stimulant and and therefore, um, you know, can affect how, how easy we can go to sleep and how long we're asleep for. Um, But I think the big one that was of real interest to me was protein. And what we actually found that protein at night um, reduced the time it took to fall asleep. And when you start to look at the science behind it, you know, certain types of protein are high in certain amino acids. And one of those is tryptophan. And tryptophan is a part of, I guess, our sleep cycles. It increases melatonin, which helps put us to sleep. And so we really wanted to explore that further um, and, and that's led to um, some control trials in, in AFL, looking at whey protein supplementation in sleep. And now we've got a PhD project. Um, I've got a student working on this now for the next three years and actually taking that to the lab and looking at a certain supplement called alpha-lactalbumin, which is a, a, a type of whey that's really high in tryptophan. And we're going to monitor the effects on um, on sleep, mood and performance in, in athletes to really start to understand what's happening in that space. So I'm not saying that, you know, having a protein drink is going to be the answer to people with severe sleep difficulties but those of us that you know toss and turn for a period of time before we can fall asleep I mean you know I I think this might be an area that's that's really interesting um, Mm. and and relevant to not only athletes but but a lot of other you know professions as well that that may actually um, you know struggle in this space. Well, I, I had a steak for dinner, so it looks like I'm sleeping really well tonight, which is an well, exciting prospect. 
No, interesting <laughs> is the type of protein. So what oh, no. we know is that um, <laughs> it's the tryptophan that needs to be higher than your other amino acids and your animal-based proteins are high in all of your other amino acids. So that can actually be a bit detrimental. Oh, no. <laughs> but Ryan also loves a couple of raw eggs. Will that help him? <laughs> Get some milk. Just stick to what mum says. Have a warm glass of milk. Warm you know, exactly. I, I actually do have a question about milk, and I got <laughs> I got ripped the shit out of this week from my housemates and Loz. Um, I accidentally bought lactose-free milk. Yeah. Um, I think I was just, you know, it was cool packaging. The marketing got me. The branding, yep. it all got me. Right. You've seen it, um, in the cafe. Yeah. Weird, but like I've had it and I've been putting in my coffee and I've had it in my cereal and like I haven't really tasted the difference. But I was just think I was thinking about it today. I was like, is there any benefit of not having lactose free milk or like should I really care? Yeah, so we've gone yeah. way off track here, but I thought no, I'd just no, while you're here, Dom, because I, you know, I'm obviously <laughs> struggling over here. Yeah, good question. So um, the only reason you'd want to use lactose free milk is if you have a lactose intolerance. But there's nothing right. else in that milk that's different. So it's still made from a dairy protein, yeah. right? So if you're dairy intolerant, you still can't have lactose-free milk. So they've essentially just through through processes taken out the sugar component of that milk, the lactose. Um, right. Everything, the protein structure is still the same. Okay. Right? So you're still getting the same amount of protein. Um, they've just, yeah, replaced that lactose. Um, from a benefit perspective, again, it, it should taste pretty similar to normal milk. Yeah. Lactose free, it's not like having an almond milk or a soy milk, which is quite a different taste. Um, same protein, similar carbs. Um, you're just not getting that specific type of sugar, which if you've got lactose intolerance, you know, is why you'd want to not have it. No other reason why. It's not like, you know, the, the sort of, um, what's the word, the, the cool sort of oat milks. And yeah. I'm not, I mean, I don't mind a, a um, I was about to say hipster milk then, uh, a hip milk. Um, but yeah, I was like, oh, it just tastes the same. So obviously, you know. I'll be making sure my entire household listens to this yeah. and I'll be putting this to Loz as well because it was unfair what was sent, right? <laughs> anyway. Well, good to know you'll still be able to get your uh, your full night's sleep. Yeah. With your, uh, with your lactose milk. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Dom, we've we've just talked about uh, two different studies. Um, how do these, like, come about? What What is it, like, specifically that sparks you to think, okay, we need to spend some time researching this topic yeah um a few a few different things i guess when it comes to my work in the the body image um and energy availability space which i do a lot of work with female athletes looking at energy availability which i guess is on the spectrum of some you know start starting of some disordered eating so to speak like that i guess has come from my personal interest that I, that i've sort of mentioned and, and passion in that area to just to want to find out more to want to help um, and there's so much that we don't know about it. So I think that area is an area that I'm just passionate about and and um, and want to research more and and, and, can, and I guess give back and contribute. Um, when it comes to the sleep space, it sort of came about in a way, uh, in a in a unique way. I mean, I think the important thing about working in um, in an applied setting in high performance sport where you know you're working with a high performance team is that you're able to find out what their big questions are. You know, what do they want to know about? Um, and not everything that they want to know about is researchable. You know, from an actual, when you get down to it, we can't actually answer everything in a, in a scientific way, um, all the questions that um, that they might have in, in industry. But essentially, you know, especially with the practitioner, my practitioner had on, I'm interested in doing research that's actually going to be relevant and practical and put to use and answering questions that um, that sports have. And, and the sleep space just came about, you know, a bit of a brainstorming session with our high performance team at the Cats quite a few years ago and just said, we know how important sleep is. How can we make them sleep better? What might be contributing to them sleeping worse? And and it just started as simple as that. And then from that, I mean, that's the researcher's job is to go away and take take these um these questions and think about how does this become um a project that we can actually research. 
um, and, and answer it in a scientific way. So it sort of started from there. And then, you know, you start doing work in the space, you meet collaborators. I'm now working with amazing sleep researchers, you know, outside of Deakin as well in, in other states that are known for their sleep work. Um, and it sort of just starts to build. You get students, you get PhD students, that question turns into that question and it evolves. It takes a long time to evolve. I mean, we started these sort of projects five, six years ago. So research is not a, an easy sort of path and it takes a while. Um, but the way that my projects normally start is by understanding what is important and relevant to industry um, and what's actually going to help practice. I love how your first example kind of just came from your own genuine curiosity. And uh, we did an episode just last week around how to find career direction. And we talk about following your genuine curiosity, you know, looking for the problems that you enjoy solving and going out and solving them. And I love how research has given you a space just to pick the problems that you're interested in and go out and solve them. And that's mm. what's most satisfying to you. And that's what's led to a really fulfilling career. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's so important to, um, you know, to obviously have passion in anything that you do and, and to, yeah, to, to, I guess, be um, really motivated and, and dedicated to finding some of those answers. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I, I love being able to, um, I guess I see it as love being able to, to help um, and, um, and contribute to the literature in a space that I think we need to know more about um, and that I'm pretty passionate about. Nice. Dom, we've got a few quick fire questions to finish. Um, so these shouldn't require too much too much thought or too long of answer. So we'll shoot through them, uh, and then we'll let you get back to uh, some diet planning for for the mighty cats. But the first one: What are your top three tips for working with athletes? Yeah. Okay. Um, build rapport. Number one. Um, you you need to um, spend time on building relationships with athletes um, because they need to be able to trust you for you to do your job properly. And I just think that is the most important thing. You can be the best practitioner and know your theory inside out, but if you can't relate to, to people and, and athletes, you know, are, you know, are, 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 amazing group of people but you know they're, they're commonly a younger sort of um demographic and and you've got to find a way to relate to them to actually be able to do your job properly so so i think that's number one um secondly i would say treat everyone as an individual um athlete so you know here there's 45 footballers i don't just send out 45 generic meal plans um just because they're in a team, it doesn't mean that they don't have their own specific needs. And, and I think that um, that is so important is that there's not one size fits all um, and you really need to individualise the way that you manage and, and deal with athletes. Um, I think that that's absolutely important. Um, and the third one, and, and I guess it sort of goes hand in hand with the first, but um, this is my life motto really, is just to be kind. Um, I think we put so much pressure, well, well, athletes have so much pressure put on them and they have a lot of expectations. And And I just really think that, you know, you need to show um, kindness and empathy. And, and if they're not performing in the way that you know they should or the way that you know they could, instead of getting frustrated, it's really about thinking, you know, you know that they've got talent, otherwise they wouldn't be where they are. So there has to be something else going on. Um, and I think it's our job as a practitioner to think outside our square and to and to come always come at it, at it with a with a um, you know yeah with kindness and to find out why they may not be able to get a job done. Um, and it, for mine, it might be as simple as following a pretty simple meal plan or doing something um, that we all think, you know, as an athlete, you, you should be able to do that. It's your job. If they're not, there tends to be something else going on. And I just think it's part of our role to, to find that out. Brilliant. This one expands a, a bit broader than just nutrition, but how many years of study is required to work in high performance in an AFL team? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it will depend on the role. I mean, 
generally is going to be an undergrad of three or four years, depending on whether it's, you know, nutrition or sports science or, or whatever it is. Um, and now these days it, it, it commonly is going to require a postgrad um, course as well. So that might be a master's, um, you know, applied science sort of a sports science course where it's a bit more practical and that's another couple of years others might go on to do a phd and that's seen as being really favorable these days in high performance sport as well um and so altogether on average it, it's probably around six or seven years of study um to be able to get to the point where you've got the qualifications to to you know be competitive for a high performance um job Important to have the doctor in front of your name as well. It's always favourable when when entering the AFL club. Uh, and last question, Gee, I like this question, Rubes. You you came up with this one. If you could uh, if you could write the book on career development in sports nutrition, what would the first chapter be on? Oh, such a good question. Um, okay, um, I think that the first chapter um i and i know that this is just a common thread of, of what i said um or throughout this whole sort of discussion but i think the first chapter would be on something about understanding people um in some way i don't know the details around you know this the subheadings of that chapter but it would really be around people skills how to build relationships um understanding why athletes eat outside of of fueling and performance um and more the the yeah the soft skills behind it brilliant sounds like uh that can't be spoken enough about which uh which is awesome don we might wrap it up there thank you so much for joining us on the podcast it's been incredibly insightful learning about how you manage the cats. It's no wonder they are such the uh, successful team that they are after speaking to you and then also learning more about your own research, how that has come about and some of the different intricacies that we don't typically hear about. So thank you so much for giving us your time and joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been awesome. Well, Ryan, there we have it. Dr. Dom Kondo. I can't get enough of saying Dr. Dom, but Ryan... What can people take away from listening to Dom? You can't get enough of saying Dr. Dom. And I mean, who wouldn't if you got doctor in front of your name? So, um, no, that was awesome, Rubes. Um, One thing I, I just took away was, you know, if you're working in sports science or high performance, whatever it might be, um, really spend the time on understanding the athletes in any way you can. So, you know, join a grassroots club coach your friend through a running program. I think we've spoken about that before with you. Mm. Um, you know, watch interviews and just identify what makes them tick and what when's the moment that they, you know, don't look so happy than when they do look happy. Like just sort of understanding who they are and what they're about because um, that was kind of, you know, the number one thing she mentioned there at the end in the tips was, you know, find a way to connect with people because um, mm. you can be the best physician in the world. But if you can't connect with them, you're just not going to cut it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, good points. I think uh, another takeaway is if you are considering a career in high performance in a place such as the Geelong Cats or an AFL club or an NSO, understand that these roles are extremely hard to come by. Now, Dom said there's, what, six to seven years on average required of study to get into these places. Uh, I would uh, add to that, it probably takes a bit longer if you want to add PhD on top of that, which is where a number of these roles um, come from. Uh, the other one that comes to mind is Luke Boyd, who's a strength and conditioning coach at the Hawthorne Football Club. When I was in university, I met up with him. He said to me, Ruben, I've been studying for 10 years to get a strength and conditioning job at the Hawthorne Football Club. So if you are interested in a high performance role, have a think about what study you need to do to get there. But as Dom mentioned, you can get paid along the way. So it doesn't doesn't have to all be doom and gloom. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, the last point I'll say is sort of find the link between your personal experience and your professional experience. Um, it's fair to say Dom really opened up there and like told us about her story of how, you know, she got into nutrition and, you know, it's, it's a sad story, but it's also an inspiring one 
but I think it's a it's a perfect example of how her literally her personal experience, what she was going through, led to her profession, uh, which is a really awesome one. So I think for anyone out there, it doesn't have to be heartache or it doesn't have to be a problem. It, you know, it's just find something that you really enjoy and, and be curious about that. And often, if you can follow um, that it can often become your profession. So I think, mm. yeah, it was a it was a hard story to hear, I must say. Like it, mm. it was quite tough to listen to, but I think like good on her for opening up and I think it was a, a really good point that she's made there. Yeah, and she turned it around and used it for good for so brilliantly. And uh, if anyone's looking for more help on career direction and how to find it, episode 121, not too long ago, is another great place to um, get started. Mm. Uh, but that's all from us. If you'd like to connect with us on LinkedIn, we'd love to chat. You can learn more about us there. You can ask us any questions. There's a link in the show notes to do so. Otherwise, thank you for listening and we will see you next time.